So I've been going through this series, right? And the thing that we've been talking about is that we are shaped by our personalities, by our skills, by our talents, by our giftedness, because God created us for this life and you have a purpose. Because as my wife always says, if you have a, you have a, that means that your life This moment is still forward moving. Your life in this moment still has purpose and meaning. And there is a giftedness that only you have because of your unique makeup that God fashioned before the beginning of time for you to live out in this moment. And some of you, it's uh, rocking babies in the nursery. For some of you, it is praying for our young people. For some of you, it's adopting Young kids who maybe uh, are in our church, not like legally adopting, but saying, you know what? You need a grandkid or a grandparent, and I'm going to be here for you to pour into you. And so that you know that there are people who love you. You have a moment right now that God wants to use. So what are you going to do? Because there's no retirement in Christianity. Your life mission has not ended. Turn to the person next to you and in behalf of Valentine's Day, what my wife used to call National Singles Awareness Day, turn to the person next to you and say, you are a masterpiece. Okay, in the future, if you see somebody that you're checking out that you would like to make a move on, sit next to them. And when I say, tell the person next to you, you are a masterpiece, you're already halfway there, friends. Now listen, in the 20th century, there was a unique character, somebody that was probably one of the most colorful personalities of his lifetime. His name was Winston Churchill. Do you know who Winston Churchill is? We know him for many great things, his incredible uh, articulation, his wordsmithing, his incredible leadership, but he was also known for being very colorful. In fact, in the 1930s, he struggled with a political adversary, a woman by the name of Lady Astor, and they engaged in a very public debate in 1930. In fact, it was such a public debate that it eventually went to the radio and they really disdained each other. In fact, uh, they went so far as to make fun of how the other one physically looked. At one of these verbal interactions, this verbal sparring on the radio, Lady Astor said to Winston Churchill, If I were your wife, I would put poison in your tea. To which Winston Churchill responded, If you were my wife, I would drink it. (laughs) Winston Churchill was a very colorful personality who had lots of things to say. In fact, when we think of Winston Churchill... We remember a man who was the mouthpiece to a generation that spoke hope and inspired courage into the soul of his beloved island empire during World War II. And we remember him as a great leader. But that wasn't always his story. Rarely ever does someone travel through this life unblemished, unhindered, unbroken. At the age of 35 in 1915 or so, 
He had served as Britain's Lord of Admiralty between 1911 and 1915, which is kind of like our Secretary of the Navy. It was a political position. It wasn't a military position. And although Winston Churchill had served in the military and done quite well, and he had been rocketing up the political ranks, uh, it was still just a political position. During that time, kind of his uh, co-author in what the Navy was going to do, the Royal Navy during World War I, was a 74-year-old admiral by the name of John Fisher. And these two guys did not see eye to eye. Uh, during World War I, Winston Churchill came up with a plan that he believed was going to bring the conclusion to World War I almost immediate. He said, we need to attack the Ottoman Empire, which was part of the Central Powers. If we knock them out of, of contention, then this war will be over before the next year begins. Well, Admiral Fisher thought it was a crazy idea, and he said, Winston, if you... Follow this plan of reasoning. It's going to lead to an unmitigated disaster. But Churchill was often described as being pig-headed, opinionated, stubborn. And that's just by his kids. I made that last part up. But he really was a stubborn guy. And so he refused to turn to the left or right. He kept saying, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to do. He went so far as to push the admiral's voice to being silenced in the politics of that day. And eventually, Admiral Fisher would resign his position as a protest against Winston Churchill which just cleared the path for Winston Churchill. And he went forward with his designs on trying to end World War I by attacking the Ottoman Empire. And it failed spectacularly. This movement by the Allied forces would last eight months at the cost of 250,000 Allied lives. A quarter of a million sailors and soldiers lost their lives to a vision that Winston Churchill pushed and almost single-handedly engaged the allies in. 250,000 Men who would never come home to their families. 250,000 lives that would be unfulfilled for their mission and their calling. At the age of 35, Winston Churchill had his life, his political life, shattered by a decision that he refused to get any kind of buy-in from the military leaders and the more seasoned politicians in his orbit of influence. After that disaster, he lost his job, he lost his reputation, he had earned the anger and scorn of a nation that he loved. 
And at the age of 35, it would have been very easy for Winston Churchill to slink in to the history books as a political disaster. His wife, uh, Clementine, would later tell a biographer that given the burden of this failure, she thought Winston would die of grief. In fact, as soon as it was over, he, after he resigned all of his positions, he went and served on the Western Front for six months, just trying to reclaim a sense of, I cost all these men their lives, now my life needs to be given to maybe gain some of that back. I can't bring those men back, but I can, I can help. You know, it's interesting that Winston Churchill is known for being elastic when it comes to being pushed. It's, it's interesting that Winston Churchill is known for uh, being the comeback king of the 20th century, for never giving up, for never allowing circumstances or the enemy to break him. A lot of things that he said have become iconic in our culture today. One thing that is attributed to him, but many question whether he actually said it, um, sounds like him to me and sounds like some of the things he said. This is what a quote that I love that some attribute to him says. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Friends, I want you to to hold on to that failure is not fatal line because I think that many times in our life when we go off track, when we do something that, that we know that we shouldn't have done, when sin grabs hold of our hearts and leads us away, we believe that we are no longer useful in the kingdom of God. We believe that our life dream has ended. We believe that we've thrown everything away, that our value has been diminished or lost. But failure is not fatal. I think Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 5 when he said this about encountering difficulties. He said, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Anybody feel like rejoicing when they run into problems and trials? Raise your hand and we can boo you. For we know that they help us develop what? Endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Now we learned last week as we've been going through this study that Moses was primed to lead a revolution. And one day he was going to visit his family uh, in where the Hebrew nation was. He knew who his family were. And as he walked down to that area, he saw an Egyptian overseer mistreating a Hebrew person. And so he steps in, he goes into action and he kills the Egyptian, believing that that might be the spark that would ignite a revolution with him as the leader. Later on, 1,400 years later or so, Stephen, who becomes the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7, is telling the story that they're all familiar with about Moses, who was their ancestor. And he's telling them the story. And he says that Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them. But they didn't. And that brings us to our text today. If you want to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, actually it's Exodus chapter 2, sorry. Exodus chapter 2, we're in verses 14 through 15. Uh, 
I, I encourage you to bring your Bibles or your mobile devices because I want you to get familiar with going to the scriptures, whatever device you use. But we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And this is what it says. After all of this happened, then Moses was afraid, thinking, everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. Moses made a huge miscalculation. Moses knew that his life was now forfeit. And so he allows his fear to propel him to go on the lamb. Now, I thought about getting a tattoo one time of the chiro, which is one of the earliest Christian symbols. My wife said, you were born without it. I married you without a tattoo and you're going to die without a tattoo. I didn't know if that was a threat or not. But more than anything, I decided not to get a tattoo in case I ever have to go on the lamb. I don't want any identifying marks. (laughs) Moses is on the lamb. He flees from Egypt to a non-extradition area, the land of Midian. But why Midian? Why would he go there when he could have gone to any of the known world at that time? He had money. He had resources. I'm sure he had contacts. Midian was off the radar. It was as different from cultured Egypt as you could find. The land of Midian, as you will see here, is unforgiving. It's a difficult land. It's dry. It's arid. It's windblown. Sand as far as the eye can see. It is filled with desolation. Friends, Midian was the land where dreams go to die. I was there in 2000. The Sinai Peninsula is where it is. And even then, 3,000 years later, it was a lonely, haunting place. It's roughly 300 miles from Cairo to this land, which would take you in a bus from Cairo to there today, seven hours to drive. Can you imagine as he's running, as he's hiding, as he's eating in places that he can't think that he's been found, where he's trying to find places to lay his head, where no one will discover him? Because not only is he now vulnerable to the Egyptian scouts and army that are pursuing him, he's vulnerable to the people of the land. He's vulnerable to any wild animal that will come upon him. Can you imagine the range of emotions he must have felt at that moment? I mean, we call it the five stages of grief, but I have no doubt that Moses is going through these things, right? As he's running that 300 miles, he's going through denial and anger and bargaining and depression. And what we are going to see is that eventually he comes to acceptance, but it doesn't come overnight. In fact, I believe that it's going to take him about 40 years to get over the grief of his miscalculation. Those are things in life. There are things in life, and you know this as well as I do, that it takes a long time that you live with. And when someone says a name or someone reminds you of a time, you recall the hurt of a moment in your life where you felt broken. And that's where Moses is. Now, let me ask you about this. I want to know what you think. Do you believe that God had abandoned Moses in this season of his life? Do you believe that his life is irredeemable? 
do you think that God, that Moses had ruined God's plan for him? Because I'm pretty sure those are all things that Moses must have thought. You know, I, I believe in, in that God has a will for my life and I tend to be a more specific will guy. My wife tends to be a more general will person. Specific will is that God calls us to this place and this time to do his calling. General will is, is that God tells you, hey, listen, my will for you is to follow me. And that's as much as it gets. We're probably both wrong a little bit. It's probably more in the middle, right? God has a specific will for us. But sometimes people will come to my office and say, Shane, I've got this big decision and I don't know what to do because if I make the wrong decision, I'm going to get offline from um, God's will in my life. And if I make the wrong decision, then God can never redeem that decision. And I'm going to miss out on my destiny. And there's just so much pressure in my life to make the right relationship, to make the right decision. Do I move here? Do I not move here? Do I take this job? Do I not take this job? Where do we go and retirement? What do we do with our 401k? Do we pull out or not pull out? What church should I attend? And there's so much pressure that we place on ourselves when it comes to following God's will. But do you think God is surprised by anything in your life? Do you think that God doesn't have the ability when you go off path and your GPS gets mixed up where it says no signal? Not that I've ever been there. Do you think God isn't preparing on-ramps for you back into the will that he's called you to? All along the way, God is a God who redeems and creates on-ramps and can redeem your story wherever it is. Why? Because he loves you. And you were called for a purpose because if you have a pulse Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 is the verse I want you guys to memorize this is homework how many of you were educators how many of you knew an educator this is your homework memorize this verse For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do what? The good things he planned for us long ago. You know what I think? This is what I think about the story after studying this more this week. I think that when Moses was spending time with his family, we don't know how often he did it, but I think that they were telling him about their history and about his genealogy and about his life and about the promise that God made to Abraham, the covenant that they had established. And I'm sure he asked the same question that all of us, you know, all, many of the, the believers in God ask, why didn't God just give us a secret handshake or a ring instead of the, you know, circumcision. (laughs) But I also think they told him where to go if things went south. And this is why I believe that. I think God knows what he's doing. I think God has accounted for the mistakes that Moses is going to make. He put him in that place. He knew his heart. He was calling him to be the savior of the Hebrew people. 
in that time and in that place. And just like Luke Skywalker, when Han Solo is frozen in carbonite and he gets the call, Yoda says, don't go. You're not ready yet. But Luke did what? He went anyway. I can't use that illustration with 20 year olds because they've never seen Star Wars. Thank you. Moses doesn't know what he doesn't know. And as he runs, believing his dreams have been forfeit, God is doing his work. Moses' waiting room will be God's workroom. And God needed to do some serious work on Moses. He needed to work on Moses' pride. And oh yeah, maybe give him time to learn the terrain and the water holes and the best grazing lands for a future time when he would lead one and a half million Hebrews into the land of Midian. And he also had to learn how to survive so that he could teach his people how to survive in a barren land. Now, interestingly enough, this region, the land of Midian, has been called the land of the Sasu. Sasu refers to the Bedouin shepherds. Now, archaeology has been our friend when it comes to this studying of the land of Midian. Did you realize, according to the the Cultural Study Bible, that there were two Egyptian texts that were found in ancient ancient Nibia, which is present-day Sudan? And they date back to 1400 B.C., which is exactly the same time that Moses was alive. Now, these two Egyptian texts that were found in Nibia... Mention YHW, the land of Shashu. Now, what do you think YHW stands for? YHW most likely refers to Yahweh. That's what the Jews would begin writing it, right? They didn't want to use the vowels when they would write it down. Uh, They didn't want to offend God. And so they began writing YHW. What is the name that God gives to Moses 40 years later in the land of Midian? I am who? Yahweh. Right? Now, there are some scholars who believe that maybe this supports the idea that there are worshipers of Yahweh in the region where Moses fled to. In fact, it may be in this biblical text that we're being told that Moses' eventual father-in-law, a guy that goes by three different names, but I like to call Jethro, um, who was called a priest, was a worshiper of Yahweh. Wouldn't that be amazing that God would send him to a group of people who worshiped the same God that his ancestors had worshiped? Um, we know that these Bedouin shepherds who lived in that region had sheep and needed shepherding, that Moses' future father-in-law had sheep that needed shepherding. And by the way, friends, when Joseph's family goes to Egypt, what is their occupation? What had they been? Bedouins, shepherds, landless people who would wander around with their livestock to continue feeding them. And Jephthro, Moses' father-in-law, fits this idea of a shashu, a Bedouin shepherd. In fact, in Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, we are told that the Midianites were descended from Abraham through Keturah. So it's possible that these Bedouin shepherds are distant relatives 
of the Hebrew people who believed in the one true living God of Israel. Think that's significant? Friends, this is so significant in the timeline of Moses' journey. And if I'm Moses, there's a, there is a real challenge not to look at just the puzzle piece that I have in my hand. There is a real challenge not to look at what's going on right now and think that that's all that there is. The problem with looking at the puzzle piece by itself is that you don't see the whole picture. You can't see the puzzle is going to look like when it's put together. And what God is doing is he's saying, listen, you are being trained. You've been given pieces, but these pieces are not individually the picture that I want for you. These pieces are just a small part of the bigger picture that I'm going to put together. And friends, your life at this moment is not just the puzzle piece you see in your hand. God is working behind the scenes. He is doing things inside of you. He is making you into who you need to be for such a time as this. And if you think that you're life is beyond that and you've already fulfilled your purpose, then you're wrong. How old is Caleb when Caleb goes to the promised land and he says to, Mo, to, to Joshua, give me the hill country. You know what the hill country was? It was the country of giants. It was the most difficult and highly defended place in the promised land. And this 80 year old guy is saying, I want to go there. You think you're done? Moses is 80 years old before he realizes who God has called him to be. Or do we even have any 80-year-olds in here? <laughs> Gentlemen, now is not the time to look at your wife. No, she's 49. <laughs> and unbeknownst to Moses, when he thinks that everything is lost... God is allowing him to enter into the second phase of his training, his second 40 years of life, where he would learn to understand what it means to be a shepherd and to love his people, God's people. This is what the text goes on to say, verses 15 through 22. When Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well. Now, it's interesting. Where do you go in a desert land if you want to survive, (laughs) right? That would have been the highways and the byways of that area. That's where he would have found community. That's where he would have found uh, someone that maybe could help him with food. That's where he needed to be. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters who came as usual to draw water and fill the water troughs for their father's flocks. But some other shepherds came and chased them away. So Moses jumped up and rescued the girls from the shepherds. Then he drew water for their flocks. And when the girls returned to Rual, which is another of, of Moses' father-in-law's names, some people think that this is his uh, given name and the name Jethro, which means excellent, was his priestly Title. Remember Israel and Jacob, sometimes they're given different names in the Old Testament. Anyway, Ruel, their father, he asked, why are you back so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. And then he drew water for us and watered our flocks. Then where is he? The father asked. Why did you leave him there? I mean, here's a guy who just intervened on our behalf. And he's helpful to us. And I've got seven daughters 
Can you bring him home to meet the parents? Why did you leave him there? Invite him to come and eat with us. And Moses accepted the invitation and he settled there with him. In time, Reuel gave Moses his daughter Zipporah to be his wife. Later, she gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom. For he explained, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. You know what that last verse tells me is that Moses is still struggling through the pain of a lost dream. That he's still struggling through the hurt of a past decision. Maybe just like you are today. So my question is, is what do you do when it seems that your dreams are dying? How do we handle it? Let me give you three quick points. The first one is that character is revealed in your crisis. Your character is revealed in your crisis. When your crisis comes, everything, all of the fluff that we carry with us is stripped away. And the only thing beside our faith that is revealed is our character. How do we handle this? When all is lost, when people are saying things about us that aren't true, how do we respond? Your character is revealed in your crisis. The second thing is, is that character is forged in your failings. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Sometimes God uses our failings to help us become the person he's called us to be. John Ortberg wrote a book a long time ago called The Me I Want to Be. Did you know that God wants to do something special with you? Did you know that God is not content with who you are because he knows who you should be called to be? Did you know that God still wants to take the clay and to fashion the pot? Did you know that you still have a purpose, that you still have a calling, that you still have a life because... Your life matters to the Lord. He wants to change you from the inside out. He's more concerned what's going on inside of you than he is the circumstances surrounding you. And in the midst of your failure, your character is being forged. And I'll give you a secret. Humility is the secret sauce that God wants to bring to all of us. Humility. And sometimes that's a constant battle for us, right? Because most of the time when we think about people, who do we think about? My wife loves a song. I don't remember who sings it because I only listen to 80s hair band. But it's, uh, I want to talk about you. I want to talk about, or I don't want to talk about you. I want to talk about me. It's a country song, which is another reason I don't listen to it. (laughs) But sometimes we get so focused on me and what's going on in my life and the injustices that I've experienced and the heartaches that I've lived through that we forget to look at those around us who are just struggling just as much as we are. Two greatest commandments, Jesus said, go back to the Jewish Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6 in a passage, I think it's Leviticus 19. And Jesus said, out of 613 laws, some that are positive, you must do this. Some are negative, you should not do this. He says, the two most important laws are this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. If we spent more time on those two things... We would change the world. 
Third thing is this. Trust is supreme when you walk through the land of shadows. It's hard not knowing our future. As Montaigne, the philosopher, once said, my life has been filled with terrible tragedies, most of which have never occurred. The things we create in our mind are often worse than the things that are reality. Trusting God, a known God to an unknown future, is what our faith walk is about. Listen, we don't know what tomorrow will play out as, but what we do know is that God is not surprised by anything, that God is our best traveling companion, that he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden because he created you for a purpose to glorify him and to worship him. But he also created you for community, to walk with him and to be poured into by him. And he wants the best for you. How many of you have children? How many of you do have children, but you don't want to admit it in public? Listen, what do we want for our kids? We want them to be the very best version of themselves, right? And when they have bad behavior or they say things that they shouldn't say or they eat your ice cream that you are saving for a special occasion, not that that has ever happened. (laughs) We're disappointed not because we don't love them, but because we can see so much clear who they should and could be. And God is doing the same thing in your life. He's whispering to you in the darkness. He's providing a dim light for your feet as you walk the path of righteousness. He's speaking to you in the silence He's holding you against the frigid winters of our life. He is the fire that warms us from the inside out. He is the hero who arrives in the nick of time when we're facing our greatest giants. You are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. Because you have a purpose. And you have a mission. If you choose to accept it. Friends, there are thousands upon thousands of people in our community and around the world who need you who need your prayers, your encouragement. You may not feel like you can do a whole lot, but you can pray for people. You can serve in the kitchen. You can rock babies. You can write letters of encouragement. You can make calls to people. You can walk a dish over to a, a widow or a widower and tell them that, you, that they're loved and that they have value. You can be kind as a greeter on Sundays, Tuesdays, or Wednesdays. You can use whatever skill set you have and what you have done in life and use it in the church. One of my very dear friends at this church 
is a guy by the name of Roger. I won't tell you who he is because he was in the secret service. You know what he does here? He, he works security. He protects the pastors in the, in the flock. Now there's a guy who's using his giftedness and his experience to serve the kingdom. What can you do today? Because you have a pulse, you have a purpose, and it's beginning to be that time that you use it. It's almost counterintuitive to think this, but it's true. When our dreams are shattered, it's then that God can take the broken pieces of our vision and create the beautiful masterpiece that he planned for us long ago. So friends, your vision, your ministry, your mission is not being lost. It's being reshaped. And God wants to paint a picture to to put together a mosaic of a much more beautiful picture than you have ever imagined. Don't you want that today? Friends, we're getting ready to close our service in just a second. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If you need prayer because we know that life is hard, that there are challenges out there, I'm going to be over here following the service. And um, if you want to make a decision for Jesus Christ, and if you're online, there's a button that says, I believe, and you click that button and we'll walk through it with you. And if you're online and you need prayer, we will pray with you. And friends, here is the reality. We were created for community because we need each other. And I know that we live in desperate times, but my hope is that someday the church will come back to worshiping in person because you can't get community through a TV screen. And we all need encouragement. Let's pray. God, today, we don't know what's going on in this room, but I can pretty well say with certainty that there are people who feel like their dreams have been shattered against the rocks of a hurricane. And Lord, it's pretty safe to say that there are people who believe that they are irredeemable, that they've done or said things that you cannot forgive, that they cannot be forgiven of. Today, Lord, I pray that you would let them know that you're still cheering them on and that you <laughs> that you have a purpose greater than they can see that you have a life story that you want to write that is more beautiful to read than any they could imagine lord i think about my friend ray who was 60 before he came to the lord and has given his last 22 years to serve you i think about how you redeem stories and how my dad moving here from a pastorate in St. Petersburg to help with my children has not only been a blessing to my family, but also just for me to be around my dad. God, our purposes are not always defined by our dreams. Our purposes are created in heaven. So God, help us to discover what they are. Help us to live those out. And Lord, change us from the inside out so that we can be useful to you in ministering to others and being a source of encouragement for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.